Heidi, appreciate that much. Romans chapter number 9, if you'll grab your Bible, if you need a Bible, there's one in the back of the pew, we'd love for you to join us. Romans chapter number 9 is where we'll be looking, Brother Dick Tideman's going to make his way down the middle aisle. If you need an outline, we'd love for you to follow along, uh, see exactly where we're at and kind of follow some progression systematically of how Paul laid out this passage. And so if you need an outline, you get uh, Brother Dick's attention, he'll be glad to get you one of those. We'd love for you to uh, see the blanks, fill them in and so forth and so on, and, and so you can understand where we're at, the, what the Holy Spirit is trying to teach us tonight, and where we're at in the book of Romans, and we crossed the halfway point, so by 2025, we'll be done with Romans, and so we look forward to that date, and uh, maybe, who knows, okay. Romans chapter number 9. Let's look at verses 1 through 3, and we, we talked extensively, this was our passage for consideration last week, and we talked extensively, we understood what uh, Paul was saying here. We'll just quickly review, because it does really, as our outline says, it really sets the table for the rest that follows. Look, look in verse 1, if you will, with me. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost. And we made reference of the three witnesses he, he called to bear on the validity and the accuracy, the legitimacy of his claim here, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. We made three observations of this passage that, again, set the table for the remainder of the chapter, really the whole passage, these next few chapters. We saw this statement here. This, it first speaks, these three verses speak to the accurate legitimacy of the attitude and the message of Paul concerning the Jews. First of all, he's saying, hey, there's no biasness here. This, this is valid. There is no one way or the other. If you think I'm overly favorable to Israel or you think because uh, I have turned my back on Judaism that I'm running it in the ground, no, no there's no bias against or towards uh, Israel in any way concerning these truths. Then, then we saw this or made this observation. Number two, the passage speaks of the astounding heart attitude um, he expressed towards his lost countrymen. Um, lost Israel was a source of continual sorrow. We looked in depthly at that and how it certainly affected his countenance, just the, ver- the mere mention of Israel and their spiritual state. And so uh, he, he then makes the astounding statement that I would be accursed, anathema, literally cut off from God, if, if possible, so that they would be saved. And an amazing challenge. And I, I think this is crucial, what we talked about, and kind of where we, uh, one of the emphasis we made last week was, was this fact and this statement. We said uh, that the lost in the community around us don't need someone in us who loves them enough to willingly take their place in hell, but rather they need someone who loves them enough to share the gospel. The story of someone who did love them enough, who could take their place on the cross of Calvary. Uh, And it's about caring enough to share. Caring enough. That's what Paul demonstrated for us. And then that carried quickly over to the third observation where the passage speaks to the amazing change that happened in Paul. And it was displayed in his compassion. We made this statement. He, as we look at Paul in this passage and then the, uh, the verses that follow, there's amazing mercy, amazing pity, grace expressed from Paul. Uh, and here's the reality. It comes from the heart of one who before Christ knew little of it. And here, here's the last point. And may I add some to what we, where we left off last week, if you'll permit me. 
we, we came to this conclusion that verses 1, 2, and 3 are often misconstrued or, uh, or maybe we miss the, uh, the, the push behind them. We sometimes read, oh, wow, Paul, I mean, what, what a heart he had. What a, what a great compassion. And certainly he did. That's not to take away at all from Paul's heart, his attitude, and his message. But even to a greater degree, may I submit to you, as we did last week at the end, these three verses say much more about our God than they do Paul. The change that Jesus Christ wrought, or wrought, excuse me, in the life of Paul. Do you realize that Paul, now as he writes this, is the antithesis of what he was under Judaism? We commented about how before he was the one that was torturing and persecuting and his own countrymen who were Christians, who were believers, he didn't hesitate tearing them apart and ripping families apart and throwing them before the lions. His mindset was, if you didn't agree with me when he was Saul, uh, I'm going I'm to stick it to you. I'm going to take you and persecute you, put you to death and so forth. What a change we have seen in Paul. We made this statement before you on the outline. Paul is a shining, living testimony of exactly the change that was to occur in someone that was a true follower of Jesus Christ. We've been following a theme in another message here recent weeks. We, we made this statement, and it, it is somewhat, to some people, who are all about social gospel and things like that, it's a little uh, affronting to them. See, God does not want to use you. His primary goal is not to use you to change the world. His primary goal is to change you. If He changes you, then He can affect the world around you. See, that's His goal. That's His plan. That's His desire. And with that stated and that said, now here's Paul. Paul's a perfect example of it. Um, I I doubt, and, and this is pure supposition on my part, I don't think Paul won many Christians to Judaism. But I believe Paul won many Jews to Christ. And I think he did it in a heart, attitude, and a spirit displayed in these verses. For context, we can understand that as Paul has been redeemed, he's a new creature in Christ, he became merciful, compassionate, loving on people who disagreed with him, who tried to persecute him like he had once done to Christians. And this was lacking in the so-called religious elite and leaders of Christ's day. So much so that Christ poignantly pointed it out, didn't he? Uh, in Matthew, Matthew chapter 9 and verse 19, he says this to the Pharisees, But go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. For I am not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. It's a smiting rebuke from the very lips of Jesus Christ to the Pharisees. We remember the context. We studied it in Sunday school for some of us just a week or two ago or some weeks a while back. This was when Matthew had just, had just come to follow Jesus Christ. As Christ approached him, said, follow me. Matthew immediately gets up and follows after Christ. He prepares a great banquet in his house. And as he was a publican, he didn't have many friends. Family didn't even show up, it appears. The only people that came... Fellow publicans, a bunch of lawyers together, amen, in modern day. Tax collectors, of course, but maybe as disdained and disliked as lawyers are today. There's Matthew and his cronies, his friends, sinners and publicans. And there's the Pharisees. Pharisees stand outside and they look at that and their, their furrowed brow and they look on with their disdain and their dislike and their, ugh. And they talk to the disciples, they, how is it your master eats with publicans? 
How is it that he sits down with sinners? How is it that he keeps company with such people? And that is where this statement comes in response. Because may I tell you this? Those publicans, those sinners, were the very people to whom the Pharisees should have shown and shared the grace of God. They are the ones the Pharisees should have reached out to. They are the ones, and yet what happened? Those people became the very measuring stick for the Pharisees of their own perceived righteousness, wasn't it? Luke chapter 18. Remember, we studied this just a little while ago. Those two prayers, the publican and the Pharisee. And the reality is, he said, I'm glad I'm not like this publican. It's amazing what a change it is. May I uh, submit to you here in this passage, in these three verses, is one of the greatest proofs of the change that Jesus Christ brings in a person's life. Paul, he was one of those like Pharisees. He, he treated people like that, especially Christians. He was, had zeal, and he, he even testifies to that fact. And now everything has changed. What's interesting is you think, well, that's, that's interesting Christ said that, but we have to understand as this passage deals with Israel this wasn't just a problem during the days of Israel or excuse me during the days of Christ within Israel uh, this had been going on for some time this was a failure we might put it that uh, that summed up much of Israel's history in fact there's a verse back in Hosea that took it a step further and I want you to understand this this gives us good content and context to these verses in Hosea uh, it's recorded this way Verse, chapter 6, verse 6, God speaking. For I desired mercy and not sacrifice. And notice what is added in this Old Testament passage in description, in judgment, ushering from the mouth of God uh, to Israel, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. There it is. Did you catch it? The knowledge of God. See, I'd submit to you this evening the reality that the knowledge of God is the foundational element for the magnificent change that we witness in Paul. It was on that road to Damascus that he really, truly came to understand who the God of the Bible is. He began his journey of knowing God personally, learning the very heart and mind of God himself. Uh, may I say, to truly know God is to experience a changed life. To truly know God is to open the doors to Him changing you, to changing what we are and slowly but surely into what we ought to be, to His glory. The knowledge of God is the foundational element in the changing life of every believer. That's why here at Fostoria Baptist Church, we, we strive to know God, love God, and live for God. Foundational is what? Knowing God. Getting to know Him better. We don't want surface Christianity. We don't want empty outward religion. We, we strive to know God and enjoy the change that the knowledge of God can bring and elicit in a person and in our lives. Where does that begin? Well, it must begin with the knowledge that, that God is the creator supreme, the creator of all. It continues with coming to know God as Jesus Christ in my Savior and my Redeemer. 
And then that knowledge continues to grow as we strive to, to know him as our sovereign Lord in our lives. Submitting things. And as we progress in this journey called the Christian life, we, we, we grow in knowledge of who he is and that he ought to be Lord sovereign in our lives. And the reality is this, friend, how often we have found in an area or two of our lives, if we will just submit and give it over to God, how much better is it in his hand? So we come to know Him as our Lord. It's a lifelong pursuit here on earth. You see, such a journey in coming to know God is literally what erupted in the life of Paul. It, it, it leaps off the page, that, uh, the letters and the, uh, here, the t- uh, epistles that he wrote. As he grew of his understanding of the gracious and loving character and the workings of God, then Paul in turn began to emulate those characteristics. Throughout the New Testament, you and I are called and challenged to be Christ-like, to be godly. And we might say that with Paul as Saul, his heart was emptied of, of harshness and hate and vindictiveness and, and, and unkindness, certainly, that was once present. It was replaced with the mercy of God, the grace of God, the pity of a sovereign Lord, and the amazing love bestowed upon him. You see, that, my friend, is what you and I should strive for. There is a phrase that we will become very familiar with as we enter into our 2020 vision for 2020 and the months leading up to it. May I put it this way? Our goal is that we would touch the lives of others. And in so doing, we want to leave the imprint of Jesus Christ. That's our goal. That's our desire. As children of God, as spirit-led believers, that, that God would continually use you and I to touch the lives of others. I, I don't want them to think that Stephen Henry is a great person. We, we, we are not out for personal accolades and praise. We, we are not out for making a name for ourselves. But friend, we do want to touch the lives of others. If but in the smallest portion we can leave the imprint of Jesus Christ on their lives. A difference for eternity. Hence, I believe that's what Paul learned. That's what Paul desires. That's his heart in this passage here. May uh, we endeavor in our daily relationship with our God. May we draw close to Him in His presence. May we grow in knowledge of the Almighty. And may that knowledge in turn be a catalyst for our compassion for one another Because, my friend, can I tell you, love, compassion, mercy, and pity ought to start in the household of faith. And then it flows from here. So we practice it here. I've told you many times before, and the more I say it, the more I like it. This is the lab for what we ought to do out there. This is where we practice it. This is where we might say we perfect it. Then as we learn to treat one another with love and mercy and grace and pity, We can move out in the world and show a world that is longing and desperate to see a Savior of love and mercy and pity and grace. I believe Paul saw that. I believe that's what Paul expresses here. So in turn, you and I can have compassion on sinners yet to taste of the wonderful saving grace of Jesus Christ. Now, 
I think this flows. As I said, it kind of sets the table. I think it flows well into the rest of the chapel. How is that? Uh, Pastor Henry, how does this flow? Well, understand that Paul is exemplary of faith. What do I mean by that? Well, we are encouraged throughout the Scriptures, and at least three times, but in other places, in different expressions, we are encouraged, the just shall live by faith. So that's an expression we come across, and if it's found at least three times in those very words, but again, other places, I believe it's expressed in different words and different terminology, a matter of semantics in some sense. And that's exactly what Paul is demonstrating here, the just living by faith. He, we know Paul is justified. He's just. He, in Jesus Christ, through faith and trust in Christ, he's been justified, and now he is in endeavoring as a believer to live out his faith in God. And what is living out our faith? I would submit to you tonight that in a simplest terms, living out our faith is to live like God. Godliness. We looked recently at the Bible verse that said, uh, let us live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. So there's living out our faith. If you want to boil it down, if you want to uh, simplify it in a sense, that is it. In action and an attitude, we live like God. And literally what Paul's going to express and show you and I in this part of Romans is those are the true followers of God. Those are the children of God, the people of God. There is a difference between uh, Israel of the flesh and Israel of faith, and literally we'll see that play out. Um, You see, he's going to endeavor now to rectify those questions we looked at last week. We spoke of regarding God and his dealings with Israel. Is God done with Israel? uh, Does he have future plans? Are all these promises of none effect that we find in the Old Testament things? And uh, we will answer those. Paul will answer those. We must understand that in rectifying those answers with the reality of what he presents here in Romans, He's led by the Holy Spirit to establish this point. In our present dispensation, uh, the true spiritual lineage, uh, let me back up here, Uh, well, the true spiritual lineage of God's chosen people is a lineage of faith, not flesh. Key point that Paul is going to make and is making and it's going to flow throughout all uh, this passage. See, the lineage that he's going to speak of, the spiritual lineage that now Gentiles have been introduced or grafted in, as we'll see explained, it is a lineage not of flesh but of faith, and hence the stumbling block, hence the obstacle to many Jews, this reality. And so we're going to see this developed in the time to come and in this passage, and we understand it is even the the basis that we were introduced to in Romans chapter 8 when we spoke of election and predestination and so forth. Uh, But... As we get a hold of that truth this evening and we see it play out in the pages of head, we, we first got to understand Israel, after the flesh, had a very privileged position. In fact, we've entitled it this way, Israel's privileged past. It cannot be denied. And I, this is what I appreciate about Paul. Paul is looking at Israel and his love for them, and yet his identification and acknowledgement that all of Israel is not all the spiritual followers of God. And in this, he says, yet they were very privileged. Notice it, if you will. Read with me verse number four and five verses, excuse me. Who are Israelites? Speaking of his kinsmen, his brethren, 
To whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and, and the promises, whose are the fathers and of, and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever, and I think it's a well-placed amen. <laughs> Man, what a statement. We're going to try to unpack it very quickly, what statement uh, stating, but it's a powerful verse or verses. Uh, Israel really does have an amazing past, and may I submit a notably bright future. We'll see that. Their blessings and privileges as a chosen nation of God were astounding, and Paul wasn't about to easily dismiss that or ignore it. That's why the verse starts out, and did you catch it? It seems innocuous at first. It seems very uh, unimportant. Who are Israelites? Who are Israelites? Well, if you think about it for a moment, that, that is a statement full of pride. It's a statement of admiration but by even Paul, but certainly other Jews. And um, even being a Jew himself, there was no doubt some national pride within Paul. He made statements in several of his letters about being of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, and describing himself. Literally, for Paul and others, it became a term or a title or of identification of honor. It was an honorable thing to say, I'm a Jew. I, I am of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I am a Jew. I am one of the 12 tribes. And, and even today, you meet a, a Jewish person, often they're very proud of that lineage. Uh, yea, maybe even boastful, we might say. Some national pride, uh, proudly offered by professing, I am this. There have been many a person that has uh, um, unfortunately offended me, not really, offended me by calling me a Hoosier because I grew up in Indiana. <laughs> Some of you Wolverines fans, I should call you a Spartan because you live in Michigan. That's about what it is, okay? I, I, just for your information, this may actually get me out of the pot into the fire. I was actually born in Ohio, so I'm a Buckeye. So that may be even worse than being a Hoosier, okay? Thank you. Yeah. Uh, a bu- okay, I was born there, Ohio, a Buckeye, so I guess I end up, no, grew up in Indiana. But I, I, I don't want to be known as a Hoosier. I'd rather be known as a Boilermaker. You see, you don't know what that is? That's okay, okay? But that's what I'd rather be known as. I, I don't want to be known as a, as a Hoosier, whatever the case is. And, and now, I, I, honestly, I, I feel like I am, after several years now, I'm working on becoming a Michigander. Or as my father, or as my father put it, a Michiganite. That's the problem when you let a, a preacher go with it. You know, we just think biblical. Jebusite, Israelite, Hittite, Michiganite. I think he came up with something. I don't know. Uh, but, but I think I'm becoming a Michigander. And I'll tell you what I'm really proud to be is an American. Even today, I'm still proud to be an American. It's not all that she ought to be. It's got a ways to go. But I'm thankful to be an American. I'll be proud of that. You don't have to ask me twice. Uh, I'll speak up for that. But may I submit that none of the historical lineage that we have as Americans, and I think it's a wonderful history, though many are trying to rewrite it, <laughs> uh, it's a wonderful history. And I think God's hand of blessing has been upon this nation. But the reality is this. We don't even come close to going back nearly as far as Israel does. And the lineage and history of God blessing them. No nation has the tremendous heritage of blessings and privilege from the hand of God. So I would tell you, it was and still is a big deal to be an Israelite. But I am thankful for you and I. It's a big deal to be a Christian. 
We have a great lineage of faith, don't we? So we may not have it of the flesh, we, we have it of faith. There's much to be said, and Paul will. So, but we will see some similarities, some parallelisms between what Israel enjoys as a chosen nation and now you and I as a chosen people, as referred to in some of Paul's writings and others. Notice it, number two, there, Paul speaks of their adoption by God. They literally been brought into a family relationship with God. It, it was a special relationship not shared by any other nation at any other time. Second uh, Samuel chapter 7 and verse 14, just the, the first part, it captures really uh, this truth. God speaking to Israel said this, I will be his of Israel, I will be his father, and he shall be my son. Great statement, great truth. And understand that goes well beyond what we might think that Israel was uh, under the the special governance of God and a theocracy, his law and things like that. That is certainly true, but it's a whole nother step more. And we would put it this way, back to our outline, we would say they were under the fatherly love through adoption. Yes, they were a theocracy and they were under the law of God and the governance of God and who he was and how he chose them and in those ways and ordered their steps in many ways. But the reality was it was also a a familiar uh, relationship or familial uh, relationship in that and such they experienced the very fatherly love, truly privileged position. And yet, what did Paul say just a chapter earlier? That you and I enjoy the 